Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. production. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night, Blister. How are you doing? Good morning. Um, oh, I'm do doing great. Do that again. Good morning. Oh, my God, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's great. You're so I want, cute. Yeah, I, want, um, I, want, I, I want to get that recorded so I can wake up to that. Okay, you got it. I'll do a good one. I uh, I had to take my, I love Santa Barbara because it's like, it's such a small town. Any place I go is like 10 minutes within town. So I dropped my car off uh, to get service today. And I had my little fold up bike in my car and I unfolded it and took off and I had a beautiful ride along the water this morning. And because I have that power assist, um, there's some really big hills where I live and it's like no sweat. No sweat. No sweat. But yeah, so it was a really nice, it was a nice reset for me this morning. So I'm doing great. Yeah, you know, there there's something really nice about having your world in order and having a community and a place. Because this morning I was talking to, I was texting with Emily, my assistant. She wants me to, you know, to do this and do that. And she's got ideas and she's got things. And, you know, it's hard enough when I'm, in my apartment in Los Angeles and I'm set and I've got my printer and I've got everything where I need to have it. Yeah. But when you're on the road, it's, you appreciate all the things that are on the road and you learn to surrender. Yeah. But you also miss, you know, the grass, I guess the grass is always greener on the other side. So you're, I sort of miss already the, uh, I guess the set world that I had, you know, the, yeah. Yeah. Structure. So, structure. That's the word I'm yeah. looking for. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna need you, I'm gonna need you to fill in words for me today because <laughs> uh, my clock is screwed up. I uh, oh, before I get into anything else, happy belated birthday. Thank you. Thank why you very much. Why don't you tell us what you did on your birthday? And your post was so sweet. Thank you so much. It really touched me. And thank you for all the people that reached out and sent me love on my birthday. You know, I know that people know that I've had a rough couple of years. So I feel like I get, I get a little extra love. Um, and I really feel it. So thank you so much. Um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, I kind of birthdays used to be a really big deal for me. And I used to like want to celebrate with a lot of people. And um, I kind of just don't take it upon myself to plan like that, like I used to. So I, at the last minute, I was like, what do I really want to do? And I really, you know, I was off call. And you know, the thing we love about being off call the most, I think, is the freedom to be able to go somewhere where we don't have to look at our phone. And uh, there's a great beach out here. It's called Halama Beach. And you have to drive 15 miles from the one through the mountains to get there. So there's nothing on either side. Once you get to the beach, it's just like nothingness, like seriously, no city lights, no sound, nothing. Um, and you don't get reception out there. So it was beautiful. And I was able to just show up. Luckily, the birthday gods were on my side and I was able to show up and get an oceanfront spot for 50 bucks. You can't beat that had a fire and took some long walks and they have a great burger there. So I had a burger from their little like store and 
did a lot of nothing, did a lot of staring at the ocean and it was just um, perfect. It's a perfect way to spend my birthday. Well, I'm glad you deserve it. Happy birthday. Can I ask you a quick question? You said that you're off call. How, what does that even mean? Um, <laughs> how, do you, how are you off call? Well, um, there's a break between births. So my next uh, moms go on, uh, I think on the 21st, I'm back like within that window, the 37 to 42 week uh, window oh, when okay. my next so moms deliver. Yeah. Right. So you had a gap before someone was in the 37 week window. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I try and take advantage of those days. (laughs) But you know, you could always still get called. Yeah, but I'm not on call. (laughs) You're not on call. All right. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's see. For me, I was, uh, I had a whirlwind week. Um, Last week, as you know, I was in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. And I had fun there, actually. I got there early because the beast wasn't ready. I decided I would fly in a little early and just see what Kansas City had to offer. And worked out great. I ended up going to the Luke Bryan concert. Um, oh, you told us. Oh, because we recorded out. We recorded on a Friday. Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm saying it again because again, it was my first country western concert, and it was great. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And then that night, I went to a Royals game, mm-hmm. and then the seminar was great. And one of the exciting things about the seminar was not just the fact that there were, I think, 14 midwives there, or or midwife students, but uh, one maternal fetal medicine doctor was there. So cool. Yeah. So I want to shout out to Kia Lanneman. Uh, thank you for coming. Thank you for being brave uh, and doing something outside the box. Yeah. We, we love and appreciate that. Yeah. And now I'm in the beast. Uh, she's fixed, mostly. You're in, your captain, <laughs> you're in your captain's chair. Yeah. I am my uh, captain. Well, the passenger captain's chair, but yes. <laughs> and uh, it's hot, but I have the air conditioning on. So. I'm in uh, I'm in that little corner of Arizona between uh, Nevada and Utah. I'm on my way to Medicine Bow, Wyoming for a conference this weekend, another breach conference. Uh, this is the beginning of my my seven weeks on the road, so we'll, we'll be recording when we can. Be great. Great. Before we get to our guests, today we're going to have uh, Trish Ludwig and Cynthia Overgaard from the Down to Birth podcast with us. We're going to be talking about red flags, I wanted to just um, give a shout out to someone who I admire greatly. I'm not sure you know who she is, but her name is Simone Gold. You know Simone Gold? The name sounds really familiar. I don't know her personally, obviously. Okay, Simone Gold is a founding member, or actually the founder of America's Frontline Doctors. Oh, that's probably her. And she's she's a doctor, and I believe she's a lawyer as well, and she was working in an emergency room during the early days of uh, the uh, COVID outbreak. And was prescribing, I think it was hydroxychloroquine, but it might have been ivermectin, and having good results with her clients. And the hospital told her to stop doing it. And eventually the hospital fired her mm. uh, because she was trying to help patients, but she was going outside the CDC uh, rigid uh, hospital based ridiculousness mm-hmm. and was actually doing individualizing her care, which is what we all strive for. Should be doing. Yeah. So she founded AFLDS. And then on January 6th, as part of that, well, she was a group that was on the Supreme Court steps, very famous video that went viral and then was mm-hmm. taken down by the tyrants at YouTube. Yeah. And then on January 6th, she was supposed to give a speech at the at the mm-hmm. Trump rally there, but that got broken up. Uh, she had to go early. So she went to the Capitol and she gave a she read her speech. All she did was read her speech. That was it. I think she didn't ever went in the Capitol or anything like that. She got arrested prosecuted for 
misdemeanor trespass. She's the first woman in U.S. history, first person in U.S. history to ever serve a jail sentence for misdemeanor trespass, was sentenced to, I think, 60 days in federal penitentiary, of which wow. eight, of the, eight of them were in solitary confinement because she wasn't vaccinated. She just mm-hmm. got released yesterday, I believe. And she's a hero to me. And she should be a hero to anyone who's listening. I don't care what your politics are. The fact that she was standing up for uh, individual care and the right and 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 is is a free speech advocate and a really uh, a caring physician who wants to fight against the tyranny that the medical system has become. And we'll talk a little bit about that today with Trish and Cynthia as well. Um, I just thought it was really important for us to uh, acknowledge her. Thank you. And, and, and wish her well. So, um, yeah, that's it. Okay. Okay. Speaking, before you go on, speaking of tyranny, this Thursday, I'm on that maternal health panel uh, with Dr. Shavira and uh, Floor from Badass Mother Birther and some other local providers here in Santa Barbara. So I'm super excited about being on the panel for the first time and being part of the community. So I'll give you guys an update next week about how it went. We have over 100 people RSVP'd to come this year. Yeah, I was. Oh, wow. That's that's a big crowd. I was going to mention it, but I figured by the time this comes out, it'll be over and and you'll be able to give us an update. So I'm still going to talk to you guys about it, though. Okay, so before we get before we bring on the guests, let's just uh, talk about our sponsor element. Why don't you do the honors today? (laughs) <laughs> Element is a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS. Um, like I like to say, they fit right in with us because we we uh, don't have any of the BS either. And um, they have a lot of really great flavors. They don't add any sugar. So it's really good for um, lots of different kind of low keto diets and those kinds of things. But specifically for our listeners, um, good for pregnancy and breastfeeding moms, laboring moms, and also birth workers to make sure that we keep up with our electrolytes that help balance our system and keep us in good homeostasis. Yeah. And I always like to say it's a good substitute for all the crap that, that some of us drink. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I brought my uh, Element uh, water bottle on my uh, In the Beast, so it's it's with me. And I'm going to be says- using it when the day, when I do have some free days and I do do some hiking or some you know, when I'm camping, I'm going to drink my element. Uh, it comes in multiple flavors, and that includes uh, grapefruit salt, watermelon salt, citrus, orange, raspberry salt, unflavored, and then mango chili, lemon habanero, and chocolate salt. And if you go to drinkelement.com and put in the code word birthing instincts, you get a free sample pack with every order. So please support them. Go to drinkelement.com, code word birthing instincts. Uh, thanks, Element. Thank you, Element. Okay, I'm going to bring in our guests, and I'm going to wait for them to come on in here. And I just want to say that that I'm really excited to have them here today. But I told them, I sent them an email this morning telling them that I was going to talk about a couple of letters that seemed relevant and one piece of current event, which I think hopefully they've heard of by now. So Trish, Cynthia. Hello. Testing, testing one, two. There's Trish. Good and morning. Cynthia, you're still Good muted. Good afternoon. Good morning. <laughs> good afternoon. And good, Happy good middle of the birthday. night. Cynthia's still got she's still Aww, got her mute, her mute button on. Oh, <laughs> there right, we go. Now, now I'm going to start, and I'm not going to stop. <laughs> I love it. Can you get a little louder, Cynthia? <laughs> can you can you make yourself a little louder? Yeah, my mic. Hang on. All right. Um. So it seems uh, you guys have big mics too. 
All right. We do. It's all showing big mics. There's big that. mics. Here we are. Big personalities. <laughs> so, yeah, it seems that uh, Stu, our two co-hosts, have the same birthday. So that's pretty darn cool. Okay. That is cool. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. So, yeah. Trisha, happy belated birthday as well. Thank you. I know. I can't believe it. September 12th, right? Yeah. Virgo's rock, man. I know. What time were you, what time were you born? <laughs> oh, goodness. Six something. You know? I don't know exactly. Oh, afternoon? Morning? In the morning. In, In the morning. morning. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was morning baby too. Yeah. What wow, time zones? Very cool. What time zones? Well, I was born in Michigan, so I was in um, uh, in the um, Eastern, actually. Wouldn't it have been weird if you'd born on the, at the exact same minute? Wouldn't that have been weird? <laughs> Wait, no. Were you, were you born on the West Coast? Yes. Okay. And I was born at 2 a.m. and you were born at 6. We were close. Wow. That's so fun. That's really wild. Okay, well, let me just let me read a little bit of your bio so people know who you are. But you're this is the Down to Birth podcast team and Cynthia Overgaard. And you guys sent me these bios, so I'm going to go through them. We here. did. Oh, gosh, I hope they were good. I don't even okay. remember that. Uh, Cynthia Overgaard is the host of the Down to Birth show and founder of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut. In addition to producing the podcast, Cynthia teaches live interactive online classes and workshops on a regular monthly basis and runs a weekly postpartum support group. After experiencing her own beautiful and empowered water birth to her 8-pound, 14-ounce son in 2005 and later to her 9-pound, 7-ounce daughter, ouch, in 2009, <laughs> Cynthia resigned from a fulfilling corporate ma- career at MasterCard and as an adjunct professor of education, excuse finance. me, of finance, yep. of 10 years at University of Connecticut in order to transition into the field of perinatal education and advocacy. She's a hypnobirthing expert and is trained in perinatal mood and anxiety disorders through Postpartum Support International. Cynthia has authored numerous feature articles in award-winning international publications and has personally educated thousands of women and couples through pregnancy, childbirth, and postpartum intergroup classes. Cynthia and her family live in Westport, Connecticut, and you can reach her at hypnobirthingct.com. Wow. Before I introduce uh, Tricia, I have a question for you, Cynthia. I was reading your thing in you resigned from fulfilling corporate medical career at MasterCard. What's the story behind that? Why, why would you do that? Well, quite frankly, what happened was I was quite ambitious in my career. I finished my MBA in finance when I was 26 and GE recruited me to Connecticut, which is what brought me here. And I ended up meeting my husband here later and settling here. And I was basically, in my own words, challenging and entertaining myself up until the years I knew I would stay home and raise my own family. So I always secretly knew my whole career, even though no one around me knew. I was definitely going to be walking away when I had my my first child. However, I did think that one day I would return to the corporate life. And I was a finance professor at UConn, and I loved that work. In fact, I did that for years after my son was born as well. And what happened was I resigned. I kept up my professorship at UConn. I was home with my son full time, and I started obsessing about childbirth. I just couldn't stop reading about it. I couldn't stop researching it. (laughs) I couldn't stop talking to people. I started publishing. I thought publishing would be more fulfilling. And finally, one woman overheard me at a New Year's party between 7 p.m. and 2 a.m. She kept overhearing me talking about childbirth to various people at the party with my husband. And she came over and she's like, why aren't you teaching classes? It's all you talk about. (laughs) So I thought that's preposterous. I'm a finance person. I'm a finance professor. How can I teach childbirth classes? And lo and behold, the most fulfilling career of my life was awaiting me right after that decision. So that's how I got into it. Yeah. Amazing. It is a calling, right? Like we just know, like, 
Well, you know, you it's people. your calling when you do it <laughs> yeah. in your free time, you know, and that's, <laughs> that's where it's just irrefutable. Yeah. I'm so glad you followed your heart and here you are. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah you know, I, as a male, um, surrounded by females all the time, I, I, and being a birth junkie myself, it's, it's kind of, if you look at my, like my podcast list or my email lists and things I get, I'm probably the only guy on the planet that has a podcast list of, of the podcasts of people that I follow because it's almost all birth stuff. Um, <laughs> Trish. Yes. So Trisha Ludwig is the co-host of the Down to Birth show, is a certified nurse midwife, an international board certified lactation consultant with a master's degree from Yale School of Nursing. After practicing as a home birth midwife, she started a holistic gynecology and women's health practice, which she ran for 10 years. Um, my cat is is being very affectionate right now. Oh, she, is, she, is passionate, she is passionate about supporting and optimizing women's transitions through the major shifts such as pregnancy, postpartum, perimenopause, and menopause. She believes in treating health issues on the physical, emotional, and spiritual level. She's a mother of three children, all of whom were born at home, Yahoo!, it is her knowledge as a midwife and women's health practitioner, but most importantly as a mother herself, which gives her firsthand insight into the complex emotional shifts of the postpartum transition. As a woman who is equally passionate about her work as she is about mothering, she understands the process of, quote, becoming mom, unquote. Trisha and her family live in Reading, Connecticut, and spend summers in northern Ontario running their family-owned camp for children. Welcome, Trisha. I have two questions for you from your bio. Thank you. One is... What's Canada like these days? Oh, gosh, are we going to get into that? No, <laughs> I just want to know. Just took. <laughs> well, where I am in Canada is very remote. And I basically don't interact with any other part of Canada once I get there. So do, it's beautiful. Do you have to be vaccinated to get into Canada? Um, you, <laughs> for the most part, yes. But there are ways to get into Canada without being vaccinated. Okay. Well, if I'm going to talk I want to talk to you about into that. the after. details. Yes. Off the, yeah, off the can, record, I'll talk. Off the record, we can talk about that for sure. And then <laughs> um, you have a master's degree from Yale, uh, Yale School of Nursing. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering, does that degree add or detract from your experience and, and your and your birth and teaching? And how, how does it, I mean, obviously it gives you a well-rounded education, but how does that affect you? I had to unlearn a lot of things. So I would say it both adds and detracts. Um, I was determined to go to the best midwifery school possible at the time when I decided I wanted to become a, mid a midwife because I just wanted as many options available to me as possible. But Yale Midwifery School is, um, you know, it's fairly medicalized in the educational program. And I was lucky enough to have a home birth midwife uh, as one of my professors. So I, I was exposed to home birth and that was still a little bit like out of the box for Yale midwifery school to have a home birth professor and to have a clinical site doing home birth. And I ended up having a baby in my final year of midwifery school. And I had a home birth with my home birth midwife professor. And then once I went down that path, there was no way back. I just, I was, I was never going to be able to work in the hospital. It just wasn't going to work for me. So over the years, I had to unlearn a little bit of what I learned in midwifery school, but I'm still glad I took that path. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing. Uh, well, it's not the same thing, but you know, I obviously was taught in the traditional medicalized model of birth and it took me a long time to unravel from that. And I was just curious how that affected you because uh, it does, they, they pound it into you and they, and they teach you a whole different way of, of looking at birth 
than the model that you that you preach now and that all of us agree upon. So it took me a long that. yeah, it took me a long time to to realize that I didn't, you know, a vaginal exam and labor wasn't necessary, but I could completely manage a birth without ever putting my hands inside a mother. Yeah. And we'll talk about that. we're gonna talk about that today. Yeah. So so we are gonna talk about red flags today. That was a topic that you guys very dear to your heart. And, uh, you know, I've been listening to your podcast for a while and, and, uh, I really like the format that you have sometimes when you have the call-ins and I think to talk to Bliss about that and with that phone line that you have where people call in and, and leave questions, that's sort of a, it's kind of a cool thing. I mean, I end up reading questions, which I'm going to do in a second, but I, I wanted to talk about something that's in the news this week because it's very near and dear to my heart because just last week, I think I might have mentioned it to Bliss uh, the last podcast, but I reached out to uh, Greg Glazer, who's the lawyer for Physicians and for Informed Consent, and Hermine Hayes-Klein, who I think we all know is a human rights attorney. We're going to be meeting in a couple weeks on a Zoom meeting to talk about what we can do about the tyranny of the NICU, uh, of baby jail, as we call it, or just the hospital itself. And Prophetically this week, um, I don't know if you know who Candace Owens is, but a lot of people do. They love her or hate her. But but as her role as a mother, she did some really good research into the vaccines on her Rumble page uh, several months ago. And this just this past week, she gave an interview with the Daily Mail, which is a British sort of a tabloid paper. Um, are you guys all familiar with that, Liz? Are you even are you familiar with what happened with Candace? No, I read okay. a synopsis only. I'm going to summarize. There's a whole article here, and I just use, you know, as Bliss knows, I get out my highlighter and <laughs> I, I do my thing. But um, Candace Owens, 32 years old, says Tennessee Hospital threatened to call child services and stopped her from leaving until her newborn underwent unnecessary blood tests as she accuses the hospital mafia of inflating her insurance bill. Now, something you'll understand about the Daily Mail is they tend to have the longest headlines ever, <laughs> and they tend to be sensationalized headlines. But <laughs> it, here's what she, here's what the the base of the story was, and she also has a new podcast out, which again I don't listen to regularly, but I listen to the it's brand new, and the very first episode is only thirty minutes long, and it's her telling the story of of what happened to her while she was postpartum. This is all postpartum, so a Tennessee hospital that attempted to hold her and her daughter, newborn daughter, hostage, telling her she was not allowed to leave until they drew blood from the hours old, perfectly healthy child. All right. She has a new Daily Wire podcast, uh, which, again, I listen to. And after she declined antibiotics for, for a positive GBS test at 14 weeks uh, pregnant and no follow-up and no informed consent other than what she reached. And she obviously knows her stuff and she knows how to look into things. She decided she didn't want the antibiotics. The fact that she declined antibiotics, they wanted to keep her for 48 hours. And this culminated in the staffers threatening to call Child Protective Services. A hospital pediatrician approached her and her husband as they tried to leave after 24 hours, callously telling the couple, quote, that she watched a baby die in the 47th hour because her parents refused to stay. Red flag? Okay. Uh, false assertions that, that her insurance would not likely cover the visit if she went against, if she left against medical advice. That's the other one they pull. Yeah. When Owens responded that she didn't care about the insurance, a social worker employed by the department hospital asked these couple to sign a document that said they were aware that the Department of Child Services could pay them a visit for leaving against the doctor's order, orders, according, according to Owens. So in other words, they pulled out the insurance isn't going to pay. They pulled out the, the uh, 
Child Protective Services. The dead baby card. Yeah. And Uh and the dead baby card. Basically Mm -hmm. all three. (laughs) They Uh, must have like a list in the back. You just, you know, let's regroup. Okay. You go in and try this one. Okay. That didn't work. Next, next. Do the, do the third one. That'll work. Yeah, you go in. You do this one. Yeah. <laughs> like, really? The, be- the dead baby card didn't work? God, that usually gets them. All right. I've got to go to CPS. Well, they didn't, I mean, know, they didn't know who they were dealing with. But the problem is, is not everyone is as, is as well-informed as somebody like Candace Owens was. She, the doctor wanted me to take antibiotics, and I declined. Because I declined, they wanted me to stay in the hospital for 48 hours. And big coincidence, that's the maximum amount that the insurance will cover for a vaginal delivery. All right? Surprise. Now, mm-hmm. that's her interpretation. But I say that all the time. If it's got an RVS code, they're going to find a way to to do it. Hearing tests, newborn screen, whatever tests they can do on the baby, they're going to do on the baby because it's all got a billable charge. Owens also recalled, here's the fourth one, by the way. You guys, didn't, you, you guys missed this one. How the hospital's head nurse warned her that if she left before she was discharged, she would be charged with a misdemeanor. Wow. What? Getting crazy. It's getting wow. crazy. Where is this? Where is this? Tennessee. Tennessee. So the reason that this got crazy is because she felt harassed in her room all night long because they were interrupting her constantly for non-important things. Yeah. And she, in, the, in the podcast, she talks about knock, knock on the door and knock, knock and knock, knock and all through the night. And finally, it culminated at four o'clock in the morning with a nurse coming in and she hearing her baby screaming. The, uh, even though the baby was only a day old, she said she never heard the baby scream like that before. And what the, what the nurse was doing was undressing the baby and putting it on a cold steel scale at four o'clock in the morning in the bedroom. All right. So eventually, they eventually she just wanted to go home because yeah. of the constant interruptions. She said, I, I just need to go home and sleep. And then the hafia, uh, hospital mafia, she described it, descended. So she basically summarized it by saying, we need to start to realize what the medical industry is and what it has become. And Bliss and I talk about that. You probably do, too. So many parents and women go through that, not in control of their child, feeling threatened. She calls the doctors and nurses repeated assertions that they know what is best for our children, as well as their veiled threats, as if you leave against medical advice and insurance might not cover this day, and that how can they can also send CPS to your home, both unconstitutional and even criminal. And I would, of course, add it's absolutely un- unethical. In the end, Owen said after her family left, the insurance did cover her stay, and no charges were filed. She said through her new show with a media presence, she will now fight to call attention to how other hospitals and other groups are neglecting parents' wishes concerning their parenting methods. She further fumed that it's crazy that we do not have autonomy over our newborns, something she described as so wrong. But in regard to the occurrence, she said she was glad it happened because now it will affect change. You know, in some ways, m- pissing off Candace Owens is like bombing Pearl Harbor. Okay, it's. It's waking, wakening the sleeping giant. And, you know, I welcome somebody, you know, sometimes we put too much emphasis on what celebrities say, but like in the Heads Up Reach movie, when Miranda Baccarin talks about her Reach experience, it carries a little bit more weight than if she wasn't known. And it's the same thing here. It's really good, I think. So I just wanted to get your take on what she, what happened to her. First, I am a free choice absolutist. So... (laughs) I find all of this to be very concerning, very disturbing, very outrageous. I mean, even if, uh, first of all, the hypocrisy, who, who in this country is making a big stink about all the parents who are chain smoking in the home with their newborns? No one. Right. 
But suddenly they're going to call CPS because she's declining a test that she deems unnecessary. I don't know if a majority of people would agree with me, but my position is <laughs> no one has a right to make a decision for that child except the parents, whether that child was lucky or unfortunate to the parents it was born to. That is the child's life and never to virtually never, unless there's outright abuse, but really we have to agree on what abuse is. But I think there are certain abuses we all can agree on. To, to decline a test when there's no evidence, and this is really the point, when there's no evidence, there's no medical indication for a test, that it's a reasonable decision for the parents to decline. We're not talking about a baby that has a fever, that's having trouble breathing. Of course, there are times that the baby does, has rights and a reasonable, a truly reasonable parent would understand what the right course of action is. But what's happened to personal responsibility? How is it possible that hospital staff has a greater responsibility to the child than the parent? Well, yeah, is that, is that a rhetorical question or are you asking me for an answer? <laughs> <laughs> you, you can always respond to a rhetorical if you want. I mean, I don't know. It felt rhetorical to me. Because they're tyrannical, they've lost their way. And they, and they, and, and, you know, we could go way off on a tangent here and talk about mass formation psychosis and, and how people, they get people to do things that you would never think that they would do. Um, if these people, if, if, if you took these nurses that were knocking on her door at two in the morning and four in the morning to weigh the baby and you asked them, what would you, you would you want that to happen to you? They would all say no. And yet they do it anyway. And I and think you they know, do not much has changed because this is what happened in my hospital experience 30 years ago, you know, and I checked myself out in the morning as quickly as possible. And, you know, I remember advocating for, to, for the pediatrician to come as soon as possible because of what was going on in the middle of the night. So the thing is, is that um, trying to change the hospital system is a very difficult thing to do. And I'm glad that we're all speaking out. And I hope Candace Owens can make some kind of effect because of her being a celebrity. But again, you know, this is something that we talk about all the time is that like, it has to become a cultural change. It has to become something that families, the consumer, the, the people who are delivering these babies have to wake up and, and say, I'm not willing to have this be part of my experience because you just delivered a baby. How is that possible that you uh, don't need sleep? Good sleep. Like, where is that in, in, in the healthcare system mindset that that wouldn't be a priority? I'm sure at the same time that they were waking her baby in the middle of the night, they were also telling her that she should be breastfeeding and trying to establish her milk supply. If they're, if they're you know, a baby-friendly hospital, yet they're doing, they're acting in a way that goes against everything that she needs to establish healthy breastfeeding. But I wanted to make a comment on your point about hospital change taking such a long time. And we see that, that it was, does it take 10 or 15 years or something for new evidence to I heard 18. be put into practice, 18, 17, 18, it's something like that, until it's something that the hospital prefers, like the ARRIVE trial. Cynthia and I were just talking about this yesterday. Mm -hmm. You know, it took all of a few months. Five minutes. To put in five minutes to put that into action when it benefited the hospital's bottom line. True. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Not to mention what they're putting into action is not what ACOG is saying to do with the ARRIVE trial. They actually manipulated and twisted and modified it, and they're putting that into action. They're putting into action what benefits them. Yeah. Ultimately, it comes down to the fact, a couple of things. First of all, you know, they have confirmation bias. They'll pick the things that they want to do, and they'll ignore the things they don't want to do. They also have no consequences right now when they when to to not do these things because every time they do something they make money every time they don't do something they don't make money and when they do something that's mean and nasty like this other than somebody like with the with the platform of Candace Owens calling out this Tennessee hospital by name which has got to bother them terribly most of the time this stuff goes under the radar and none of these people are ever punished for their meanness or their obtuseness or their unethical behavior. I mean, ACOG and the AMA, not groups I'm big fans of, as you know, both are vehement in the idea that the use of coercion is never acceptable in any circumstance for any reason whatsoever, including the threat of calling Child Protective Services. I mean, that's literally spelled out in the ACOG's um, thing on coercion, its guideline on coercion. And yet every day in every doctor's office in every hospital, they're violating these medical ethics to no consequence. And it's a tenant of informed consent that, in the end, you must respect and support the parent choice. Yeah, right. It's a principle of informed consent. It's like they don't care. They, they probably didn't even give informed consent. I mean, how how much easier would that have been? Just explain what the risks are to the infant. Uh, if the infant contracted GBS, let the mother know what the warning signs are. Let her go home and tell her when to call and come back if any of these things present. Yeah, but the hospital so knows simple. best. The hospital knows best, and they don't have to explain. And it'll it. right. make money if she goes home. Hey, so just, oh, Cynthia, you want to say something? No, I was just envisioning like if 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 adult humans could only own one type of scale in their bathroom, and it was a full body metal scale, and they could only weigh themselves naked in the middle of the night. I'm just wondering how often adult humans would weigh themselves. <laughs> that sounds miserable. An interesting thought. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. There's some of us are obsessive about that. We'd probably still do it anyway. We'd still do it. <laughs> um, so as if on cue, by the way, this morning I got a, uh, oh, actually it was yesterday afternoon, but I didn't see it till this morning. I got an Instagram message from Haley who says this, uh, looking for guidance. I'm currently in the hospital. I declined a C-section, antibiotics, labored, inducing drugs, and had a vaginal birth after two C-sections. And I declined all the vaccines and vitamin K, but they won't discharge my baby due to high jaundice levels when my midwife has called the hospital twice to say she feels comfortable with them discharging me and baby to her care, and they still refuse to discharge us. Sorry, just looking for some guidance anywhere I can that I feel I can trust. And I said, these things can be managed at home. We have portable billy lights when necessary. The medical model only knows what's in their little box, never thinking outside of it. And she said, yes, this is what my midwife said, as well as, uh, of course, the hospital doesn't think it helps. What helps? <laughs> they stated, we don't want to let baby leave a da- to a dangerous situation. Yes, hmm. home. Then they the wouldn't parents. admit them. Then they wouldn't admit them into the hospital in the first place. Yeah, well, that's you and I. Yeah, don't go Could to the I hospital. Did I just say that out loud, place. by the way? <laughs> Thank God, yes. Say it as much as you want. Scream it to the rafters. <laughs> I mean, it's often the case. It's That's the case. That's where the risk is in the majority of births. That's I don't know how long her baby's been in the hospital, but she says, every day it's been one thing after the next, why they want baby to stay another day. I am trying to be respectful of them, but at what point can I decline care since I have care lined up outside the hospital? 
Yesterday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wrote, you have the right to decline anything. Yesterday. Call 911 and get the heck out of there. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, so that's just, these are the kind of things I get pretty much every single day. And at least once or twice a week, I get a I get a baby jail letter. So which is why I'm going to meet with uh, Greg and Hermine and see what we can do about coming up with some sort of advocacy hotline or something of that nature. Or yeah. some sort of script, some sort of script that these people can just keep in their back pocket. Like, it's, yeah, really, hard. About, it's really hard for people to speak up. Yeah, we've talked about say. a document that has like the statistics and says, you know, that they can't be coerced and all of that. That would be a, a good start for them to be able to pull it out and be like, here, this is actually, you know, what you guys should be following. So I think it's great, Stu. I'm curious to hear, ladies, what you were thinking about um, red flags. I want to I want to hear about what your inspiration was for the topic today. Well, when I started teaching hypnobirthing in 2007, I felt like I got a good education in it. And it was very, a lot of us get pulled into this work because, because we had these inspired great births. And we're like, oh, now I'm going to support other people in having great inspired births, which is the naivete that can happen even with doulas there's a high turnover with doulas because they go in with these beautiful intentions and then they get um made aware very quickly of how birth is typically happening and then they either get discouraged and disheartened and they leave the work or they have to modify how they're supporting women and what i found in teaching my classes was that i was feeling a few months in quite disingenuous to keep so many thoughts to myself yeah. And in hypnobirthing, it's like, you know, there's always this message like, you know, whatever they decide, it's all good. And, you know, you're not there to question their choices. And it's like, well, I am. I'm not there to judge their choices and question them as though I know what their right choice is. But I am there to definitely rock their world and get them to become aware of the array of choices they have. Mm -hmm. And I started to get very bold about whether they were with the right providers. Um, I had a really difficult moment in which I had this lovely couple take my class and she was with the doctor that I had had and fired in my pregnancy. My birth story is out there. It's published and it's in uh, episode 10 of the Down to Birth podcast. But I fired my doctor because she was uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing for sure. And I felt guilty the whole time I taught them because I felt like I had this secret that I really knew who the doctor is, what her character was. And I didn't say anything. And she ended up with a C-section that made, that she felt was unnecessary and she was devastated. And I really felt um, I had to explore what degree to, like, to what degree was I responsible for that. She entrusted her childbirth education to me. And right, my assessment of a doctor isn't really um, law. It could be flawed. It could be wrong. But I didn't really challenge her to say, like, how do you feel in the doctor's presence? Have you asked the doctor this question now that you've had this, uh, this education? go see what she says about this. I didn't really, um, I didn't approach it that way. So this was very early in my teaching. And that was when I realized like, this is not going to work for me on these terms. I'm going to go rogue. I'm going to be teaching that I will trust that the right couples are going to come to me who are going to benefit. I firmly believe that's exactly what's happened ever since. So red flags has been a very core part. Are you with the right practitioner, as I know Stu says, I'll try Stu. Um, I still say provider. I'm, I'm working on it. But are you with the right provider? Are you with the right doctor, midwife, practitioner? So Trisha and I did um, a three episode 
segment episodes um, uh, 118, 124, and 129. Stu, you were episode 128, so you were nestled in there. Um, broken up by trimester. First, second, third trimester red flags. So Trisha, I think, has uh, has found one she thought would be really good to start with. And we'll go back and forth a little bit on some of these. Yeah, just to add to that, I mean, the the, the premise of our work is that the relationship, like any healthy relationship in your life, trust and respect have to be at the foundation of it for it to be a good relationship. And if you have a good relationship with your midwife or doctor and the, the trust and the respect is there, you're far more likely to have a birth that is safe and satisfying. And so many people just end up with the provider that they had their first gynecologic exam with or the obstetrician that their, you know, friend, sister, or even mother went to. And they really don't have that trust and respect in that relationship, or they don't even really know what to look for. So we put together the provider red flags as a way for um, mothers who are trying to figure out they have some little sense that maybe this isn't the right fit for them. Well, these are the things that you can look for along the way that are going to tell you that, you know, this may not be the best relationship for you or potentially for anyone with some of these, some of these red flags. Um, so I think a, a good place to start is due dates. Like any midwife or obstetrician who has a hard line on due dates and talks about induction from day one, if you go a day past your due date, we would consider that a red flag. We don't believe in the due date. <laughs> um, we believe in a due month. We believe that, and you guys are on the same page as us on this, we know. 100%. Um, that, that that pressure to have your baby by a certain time is, that's not, that's not generally going to go well for you. Um, babies come when babies come and due dates are a wide range of time. That's a really, that, that is a really good one when you're talking about first trimester stuff is, is a very good question to ask right off the bat. How, what, you know, what's your protocol if I go past this due date that you've given me? Um, yeah, it's, that's a question. How attached, how attached are they to that? to that specific date? Or do they say when they give you, well, this is the approximate day that your baby may or may not come, <laughs> most likely will not come on your due date um, versus right off the bat, are they are they jumping into, well, once you go past this date, this is what we're going to do. You're going to start having, you know, weekly ultrasounds or biweekly biophysical profiles or, you know, what's that conversation like? And unfortunately, like here in California, you know, for midwives, it's not about our comfort level. It's about what the law says. So then you get into, you know, whether or not uh, licensure is actually limiting your ability to practice in the way that's aligned with your values or not. So just you know, throwing actually, that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in response to that, we, we did a story recently on Instagram discussing this. And we had a few mothers write in who said that they're... Um, their midwives, or they personally fudged their due date, or their midwives mm -hmm. changed the due date, or they told, you know, they said their LMP was two weeks later than it really was, something like that. Um, so women are having to take it into their own hands to make sure that they can go past their due date and feel relaxed and comfortable and not be pressured into an unnecessary induction. 
Right. Yeah. The only issue with that, of course, is if uh, if they change their due date and then they go into labor at 37 Early. and a half weeks. Exactly. It, it, or if you have a late pregnancy ultrasound and suddenly they're saying, wait, size and dates are not really not matching up here. I mean, it can it can bite you. I don't I'm not saying that's the right thing to do, but women are getting desperate. Yeah. As our, as our midwives, and at least in our state, uh, to try to figure out ways to, you know, fudge things if they have to, because they know that the artificial deadline is really foolish. If the baby's fine and the mother's fine, then there's, there's no real downside. The, the, you know, the risk that everybody talks about is the rising risk of stillbirth, but a rising risk of stillbirth doesn't mean anything if you don't know what the denominator is and the actual risk is. And the actual risk remains quite small, especially when you know, everything about the pregnancy and the environment around the baby are fine. Okay, so that's number one. What's the next one? Well, I have a segue into the next one because when you're, as Stu said, it's one of the first important questions to ask at your appointment. And when I talk to my clients about that, I always say, now be careful of your language. Don't say to them, when would you induce me if I go this late? You have to say to them, oh, by the way, when do you typically recommend induction? I mean, I realize it's my choice, of course. But I'd love to know how you typically, uh, what you typically recommend. Your language is so important. And the second red flag is, how are they speaking? What language are they using? If you really look at how some doctors, let's say, are speaking to, doctors or midwives, but doctors are speaking to uh, pregnant women, it's often in terms that would be too offensive for your own marriage where there should be virtually no bed, like there's virtually no language barrier between you and your partner. For example, for another human being to say such words to you as, well, I'm not going to let you go past 41 weeks. It's like, I beg your pardon. Did you just say the word let to me? My own, I wouldn't speak to my husband that way. I've never, I've never had another adult in my life who would presume to speak to me as far as what they would let me or not let me do. Mm -hmm. So I think that when we, um, allow another adult to speak to us this way, in particular, one that we are hiring for arguably the most important hire of our lives. I just think it's very telling, even if they say it unconsciously, all the more telling. Um, I go a little bit farther. I mean, I, I, I talk to my clients as though they are clients of their doctor, not patients, because the word patient has you know, language affects how we think. And I, I'm, a, I'm a student of foreign language. It's one of my hobbies. I've studied languages in my whole life. And also, I remember um, when I was studying sociology in undergrad, learning about Helen Keller, she didn't have any language at all. She didn't have a word in her mind for many years of her life. And she was a fascinating case because she became someone who eventually had language from having none. And one of the most interesting things she said was, once I had language, I knew what I was feeling. Mm -hmm. As a teenager, I would, I would throw the furniture. I would lash out. I didn't know if I was lonely. I didn't know if I was angry. I didn't know if I was frustrated because there wasn't a word in my mind. And suddenly you have language and it shapes how we think. It shapes how we feel. It shapes how we respond. So red flag number two is listen very carefully to, lang to the language they use with you and be very mindful of the language you use with them, is there an implication that they are more important or powerful than you are? Great. I love that one. That, yeah, that's I great. Mean, that's, that's a big one for people because a lot of people actually mm -hmm. go into the provider-patient relationship expecting there to be that power dynamic. They, 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 they are 
well, almost welcoming that. Like, tell me, tell me how you're going to take care of me. Tell me what you're going to do for my, my baby, my, my pregnancy, my body. Um, so that's, I think that's very eye-opening for a lot of people to hear that. Yeah, you know, well, and, oh, go ahead, Liz. I, I was going to say, I think that there are some people, once you start to actually pull it apart, that that is their preference that they actually want someone else to make those decisions for them and they don't want to take the personal responsibility. So that's a choice. And, and if that is how they want to be cared for, then, then that medical model might be the appropriate one for them. Um, but it is good to bring it to their attention so that if they're not wanting that experience and they start to take some responsibility around the language and the thought process of like, you know, when people are in midwifery care or in my care, I can speak to specifically, you know, it is a relationship. I'm, I'm a consultant as far as I'm concerned about giving them information and really like stepping back and saying, it really is ultimately up to you. You know, if you want nothing, if you want to let God make the decisions completely inside of this experience that you're having and not go into the medical model at all in terms of how you're thinking about this. I'm going to respect that because I believe that that's a way to live your life. So I think that breaking it apart for people can be really helpful. And I've, I've cared for people where I can tell that they are more comfortable with someone making decisions for them. And when I step back and I don't do that, they have to grapple with, this is my baby, my body, my life. And I actually get to make all of the decisions in this relationship. If I could go a little bit deeper on that one thing, too, is that culturally, we, we, we've lumped pregnancy in with medical problems. You know, if I have a appendicitis, I want someone to tell me what to do, All right? And what we need to do is we need a culture change because we need to understand that, that you wouldn't want your doctor telling you what kind of features you're going to get in your new car, okay? Or what, how to de decorate your living room or... And, and, you know, although pregnancy can become a medical problem and giving birth can become a medical problem, our culture thinks of it as a medical problem. And if we were to take that and change that into this is a, a life event, then maybe we wouldn't want to surrender for this particular thing as much we might want to surrender if we had colitis or an appendicitis or, or pneumonia. We obviously want someone to just fix us. We don't really want to, you know, but this is different. This is a bigger, bigger thing. Yet our, our American culture, Western culture has been groomed over the last, you know, talk, you, we talked um, earlier about how you had to unlearn your Yale stuff. And I had to unlearn my, my medical model um, from my residency training. We need to help America and the women of America and, uh, and the world learn, unlearn um, that. And then, and then maybe some women will still want that but maybe a lot less will yeah this is part of taking birth back i mean when we put birth in the hospital many many years ago that's when all this shifted and changed and and, and we let it when, when women were giving birth at home all those years in history prior they weren't having their doctor or midwife or whoever was there telling them what they could and couldn't do it was the power was within the woman and it's this language helps us take that back Love it. Okay, next. <laughs> Number three. Next. Okay, <laughs> this is a big one. Um, and this is, this is a great example of something that I really had to unlearn from midwifery school is vaginal exams in labor. Or, well, 
the red flag is really the routine use of vaginal exams in labor. Of course, you can have a vaginal exam in labor and there's a time and place for a vaginal exam in labor where it's more beneficial to have it than not. But the routine use of vaginal exams overall, late pregnancy and in labor, we consider that a red flag because especially in late pregnancy. I mean, if your provider is telling you at 37 weeks, it's time to get up on the table and check your cervix so we can get some information about when this baby's coming. That's nonsense. It is nonsense. It tells it you nothing. It doesn't tell you anything. It just makes you uncomfortable and feel <laughs> vulnerable and yeah. they feel powerful and you get nothing from it except potentially, you know, an accidental rupture of membranes or something. And, and, and stress. Oh, I'm only one enclosed. So what? You know, or I'm walking around four centimeters. Like none of it really is a predictive measure to tell us how long you're going to be in labor, when you're going into labor, any of that. So you're right. I have some women who are in my care who will be like, Bliss, are you ever going to want to look at my vagina? (laughs) I'm like, "Uh, if you want me to, I will, but I don't need to. (laughs) So, I mean, there are, yeah. there, there are definitely women who want that. They, they, want, they <laughs> want to know that information. It makes them feel good. That's great. Have it. Um, but again, in the education piece, like you guys were talking about, then if you start to tell them, I absolutely can do that, but it's not going to really tell you anything. Right. And, you know, if that feels important to you, of course, I'm going to honor that for you. Um, I actually have a midwife friend who will teach the dad how to how to do dilation checks on her, um, which I think is really interesting. It's like, give the power back and, you know, like, why, why do we have to be the ones who hold that information? Why can't we just be teaching the family how to do this together? When it comes to labor, I think also it's important uh, to understand that routine, regular assessments of the cervix also really tell you nothing about the labor progress. I mean, in, in my training, we were still working with the Friedman curve. You were expected to dilate at a certain rate over time. And we were doing regular cervical exams. And I was taught before you did any type of intervention, you must do a cervical exam to know the station and the dilation. And it still doesn't tell you anything. You can be four centimeters, eight or 10 or 12 hours into your labor, and you can have a baby 30 minutes later, literally. Or it might be two days later. That's still going on, by the way. Uh, Yes. Oh, yeah. It's prevalent. We've said, that the most dangerous word in obstetrics is routine. And anything that's done routinely should be questioned. But when I'm teaching my couples about this topic, it's like, yeah, we can say if she wants to be checked, go for it. If she doesn't, go for it. There's also, but, but the, the thing I tell my couples always to ask themselves is when anyone, when they're speaking to anyone, even a family member about birth, when they're in their labor, always ask one question, is this serving me? And to ask oneself, is it serving me? Even if the midwife or a doctor really is making a fair decision, a reasonable reasonable decision at a, on an occasional point to check how dilated she is, maybe the cervix is a little swollen at, and they need to check it. But I'm not sure it ever serves the woman to hear about it because when we get into that part of our mind, and I'm going to go there quick, I go there quickly, Trisha jokes with me about how I'll turn anything into a spreadsheet. I would be the one wanting to form some kind of formula for how I'm dilating. I've learned I have to go into my other part of my brain. And that is our birthing mind, just like the other mammals. We do want to get away from the analytical thinking mind in order to allow this process to really dominate in a physiologic way. So it's my belief um, that 
it just isn't serving women to really hear those numbers. Not at all. Agreed. Not not to mention the disruption of their labor zone. Yeah. You know, when you when you go in there and you do a vaginal exam, it's a position change. It's on your back. It's disruptive. It's not that quick. It's vulnerable. certainly not comfortable. Yeah. It's vulnerable. I mean, you've just stepped out of your labor zone in a way that could slow, stall, or even stop your labor. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so Great. the next one's a quick one. This one is simply, a, basically, a self-assessment for the woman. How long are you waiting for your appointments, and how long are those appointments lasting? So the doctor that I fired that I referenced earlier, and by the way, I didn't mention she admittedly had about a 45 to 50% cesarean rate. So now you know the guilt I felt when I didn't share that with the clients I had. But I regularly waited, even before I was pregnant and saw her annually for my GYN appointments. I regularly made the 8 a.m. first appointment of the day. She never saw me till between 9.15 and 9.30, ever. I saw her for three to five minutes a year. Unbelievably, I thought that was acceptable. And she continued to get my business even after I was pregnant. I started to go to her by default because I was so unaware that I had choices. And we did a poll on Instagram and got many hundreds of responses. And it was kind of interesting for home birth, for women seeing home birth midwives, they were waiting on average two minutes and the appointments on average were 61 minutes. For the birth center midwives, the women reported to waiting on average eight minutes and the appointments were 43 minutes. So the wait time got a little longer. The appointments got a little shorter, but still really quite good. For hospital-based midwives, they were waiting 11 minutes for 25-minute appointments. For obstetricians, they were waiting 31 minutes for 11-minute appointments. I do think this matters. It might sound unimportant to think, well, who cares how long you wait? They're busy. I disagree. I, I wouldn't show up two minutes late to a hypnobirthing class that I'm teaching. I can't even imagine showing up 10 minutes late, 30 minutes late, 45 minutes late. As it, it, Again, this is a subtle indication that both of you agree the doctor is more important than you are. I used to have to rush off to my corporate job. It was incredibly stressful for me to sit there and think, oh my gosh, I think I have a 10-15 meeting this morning. It, it was just understood. It was my job to wait for her. And I firmly disagree with that now. I would never stay with a doctor now who kept me waiting like that for appointments. Yeah, I would like to add that 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 I agree with you 100% if it's a regular occurrence. I just want everybody to understand that every now and then a doctor is late because he's at a birth or or you're at, a, at something so, or you have to, sometimes I had to cancel my whole day. Um, and it screwed up people because they took off time from work to make the appointment. And then I had to cancel on that. But if it, if it's a routine thing that's regularly happening, there's that routine word again, by the way. Um, if it's regularly happening, then that is a huge red flag. And I just want to repeat that because I, I don't know that you, you went over it very quickly. And I want my listeners to understand home birth midwives, two minute waiting period, 61 minute visit. Birth center midwives, eight-minute waiting period, 43-minute visit. Hospital-based midwives, 11-minute waiting period, 25-minute visit, and OPs, 31-minute waiting period, and 11-minute visit. Mine way, were 11 much... Minutes, 11 minutes that was decent. long to me. I thought it was I long, was going to say the same thing. It, I think I the average, it, too. it does seem like it was long for, that came just from our population, but I think somewhere, and I can't remember where we ever came across this, but somewhere we came across a statistic that said the average OB, yes, yeah, six minutes, right? Yes. And six minutes. That's it. So over the course of your entire prenatal relationship with this OB, you are going to have maybe one hour of time spent with them if you had 10 visits, which most people don't get. 
I also want to, I know crazy. So it's, it's when we feel that that's acceptable, I want to add Stu, I agree with you. And I didn't get into the full details when I talk about this, but I will add an anecdote that I tell all of my clients when I talk about this waiting time. After I talk about that with my clients, I tell them a little story and I say, listen, I once brought my two children to the pediatrician. They were, they were two and six. It is very difficult to sit in the pediatrician's office with little kids and entertain them. And I went to the pediatrician and she, it, was, it took forever to her, for her to come in. It was so difficult waiting. We always waited a little while. This was about an hour. At one point, I opened the door and I just said, can someone tell me what's going on? I've been in here with my children. They said they'll look into it. The pediatrician came in with her hands together like this, apologizing. Cynthia, I am so sorry. I forgot about you. I went from the appointment before you to the appointment after you. I instantly forgave her. I was like, oh, that's instantly because that's a reasonable person does. We all can make mistakes. And that that was fine. That was not reflective of how she viewed me and that she felt I should wait. So I'm with you 100% that we're all reasonable. But if this is the nature of the relationship and you can expect to wait and get no time with your provider, I think it's a red flag. You know, and that goes back to your use of language. The idea that somebody would actually come and apologize to you. Mm-hmm. She was the first doctor to that's, ever apologize to me for being Yeah, that's a doctor you might want to consider keeping. <laughs> Absolutely, and did. All right, Trisha, I think you're up. All right, the next one is related to the placenta. So any doctor or midwife who starts to talk about your placenta failing in late pregnancy is a red flag for us because the placenta can have problems in late pregnancy in a pregnancy that is compromised by some sort of medical condition. But to just say that every day that you go further in your pregnancy, your placenta is getting weaker and is going to just sort of age out or time out or fail you is completely inaccurate and a major red flag that just indicates that your doctor or midwife is going to be talking about induction as soon as they can and pushing for that every day. On that note, someone who's talking about the size of your baby, unless we're talking about something that is actually a medical indication like gestational diabetes or a baby who's IUGR or something like that. If you're talking about the size of the baby or the shape of your hips or any of those kinds of things, putting those things in your head, that is a massive red flag that someone is going to start pushing for not supporting your body and doing what it is designed to do. So, And the interesting thing is they that same provider will say that your placenta is aging out and is going to fail at the same time that they're telling you that your baby's getting too, too big. big. <laughs> it's just a complete illogical contradiction, right? If your placenta is not working, your baby's not growing. Yeah. And they'll also talk about the grade of the placenta and they'll talk about your placenta's, you know, getting calcified, looking old, an old placenta. And, you know, I, just technically speaking, a grade three placenta, which is the one that's where it's fairly calcified, you can be seeing that from 34 and a half, 35 weeks on. And it's within the normal range to do that. Having an ultrasound in the third trimester for no reason is a red flag. Absolutely, 100%. And it's linked to worse outcomes. That's right. They did a meta-analysis on that. It points to suspected big baby and it points to um, low fluid. And it's linked to far worse outcomes for... Yeah, you have a... just just, there There was a paper that came out that said 
you have an ultrasound in the last month of the pregnancy, you have a 22% higher rate of cesarean section. <laughs> All I right. believe that without better. Yeah, I mean, comes. what's the point? What is the point of the ultrasound other to look for something that they are going to give you a hard time about to try to get you to have an induction? I mean, really, what are you looking for? It's routine, it, it, guys. It's routine. That's the problem with routine. So failing placentas, aging placentas, thinning placentas, calcifying placentas, all of that in the absence of, you know, some sort of underlying medical condition where your placenta truly could be compromised because of your complication in pregnancy. Major red flag. What do you guys feel about how would a woman ask a doctor how she handles the third stage? Is there is there is that a red flag? And then if you were going to ask your doctor about the third stage, you guys have a great way of figuring out how to ask the question. What would be a good way to ask that question? Do we have birth of placenta naturally or what are you saying? The routine use of Pitocin in the third Pitocin, stage. Pitocin, a time limit, uh, pulling on the cord, mm-hmm. you know, the stuff that we, we all did. Active management of third stage. So yeah, what's your, I would probably say, you know, can you talk to me about how you manage the birth of the placenta? What does that look like? Do you allow it to happen spontaneously? Do you give me as much time as it takes? Do you Are you willing to use alternative positioning before intervening? Do you use mostly the routine use of Pitocin? Is that standard in your practice? How about can you not manage the birth of the placenta? I tell my clients to off. I tell my couples, as soon as a baby comes out in a hospital, everyone's in a big damn hurry. Yeah. There's like pushing down on her uterus. They're tugging on the cord. And I say, I find this to be, I, I, it's, a, it's the only word that comes to me, so disrespectful, like tugging on the cord that's attached to an organ that's attached to the inside of your body. We're actually doing this to other people, not to mention it's risky because you can leave retained placenta and like, oh, what a shame. Look at that. It seems it didn't all come out. Now we have to wheel you in for a procedure. We don't have to be in a big hurry. There's nothing urgent about the placenta coming out. If you're breastfeeding, it's going to happen more efficiently and more quickly. Gravity, hello, I mean, plays a role. I didn't understand that until my daughter came out of me in the tub and my midwife said, okay, Cynthia, you hold your baby and we're going to, my home birth midwives, Trisha was one of them. You hold your baby. We're going to hold you by the arms and help you stand up. And my midwife grabbed a bowl. And I'm like, what's that? What's that for? She's like, in case the placenta slips out. And I famous last words, I said, I, Amy, I don't remotely feel this placenta is about to come out. She said, well, nonetheless, here, I took one step out of the tub and whoosh, it just went right into the bowl. So I can't believe they're keeping women lying back if they are so interested in this. Why are they lying back and pushing so aggressively and causing discomfort to her? Because the active management of third stage of labor became a thing, and it's still a thing, and that requires cord traction and fundal pressure, and the fundal pressure is not actually maybe part of it, but cord traction, pitocin injection, and an actively managed birth of the placenta. Yeah, when you said, Tricia, when you said the words, um, you know, do you consider alternative positioning, you know, you say alternative positioning to a physician. And most of them have no idea what you're talking about. They just, they don't know. What does that mean? I've learned from midwives about the women getting up and squatting or even going on the toilet or something like that and having the placenta just come out because you've changed their position and stuff like that. And and also you ask, why is it, why are they in such a hurry? And it gets back to the thing that I, Liz and I talk about all the time is like, 
you know, name something the hospital does and I'll tell you why it's wrong. And um, this is one of those things where the hospital model is designed, you know, to move them in, move them out, raw hide. It's like an old, from that old TV show. Um, they, the doctor wants to leave. Doctor can't leave till the placenta is out, the uterus is firm, the orders are written, blah, blah, blah. So if you're sitting there waiting 30 or 45 minutes, that's a lot of time. That's money out of the, I mean, I, I, I don't mean it in a pejorative way, but, you know, time is money. And the doctor can't get back to doing something else or can't be in another room or can't go back to his office or, or however, you know, whether it's a laborist or whatever. So, and it's the same thing with why are they inducing you? Why do they want to talk you into doing a C-section rather than having a vaginal breach delivery? Uh, because C-section, I can be in and out in 45 minutes and with a vaginal breach delivery, I got to be there forever. So why would I do that for the same amount of money? So everything about the system is, is, is screwed up. And this is another one of them. It, they're in a hurry. Why do they rupture the membranes on a second twin immediately? Because they have 12 people in the room standing around waiting and they can't keep 12 people in the room standing around waiting for that second baby. Um, everybody's got to get back to doing what other meddling things that they were doing, you know, like interrupting Candace Owens in the middle of the night. <laughs> so, Fine. Right. Okay. How are we doing on our list? Yeah, how's the list? We're good. Do you want us to just do uh, one or two more each or what? Yeah, do, do one, to... one or two more. And then okay. I want to end with a little letter from somebody that uh, I think okay. will tie it up nicely. Okay, I will do, uh, I, I'll finish this round and then Tricia, you do one more and then I'll pick one more. I, I, I know the one I want to end on. The one I want to mention next is if they, this one really gets me going, if they deny you food and drink and labor. So let, let's just talk about this for a second. As a new childbirth educator in, 20, uh, in 2007, I was reading up on this all the time and I saw that the World Health Organization had plenty of data on this. And it clearly showed that when you deprive a laboring woman of food and water um, and, and hydration, I, I don't mean by IV, when you deprive her of food and labor, it's linked to two things failure to progress, and fetal distress. Now, those are the top two reasons for C-section in the United States. What a coincidence that we have a policy that's driving up the top two reasons for C-section in the United States. So for years, little chi little local childbirth educators like me are teaching women, listen, take matters into your own hands. You need, your muscles are working. You need to sustain yourself. Listen to your, if you feel like eating, you need to drink. And it's so crazy. Eat all the ice chips you want, by the way. You can have a bucket of ice chips, but you can't have a sip of water. None of it makes any sense. This all started from the American Association of Anesthesiologists decades ago because they were putting women in a twilight sleep. And not only do we not need to do this anymore today, but here's where it got interesting. In 2015, that very association of anesthesiologists came out with a press release, November of 2015, that said, oh, look at this. Lo and behold, women benefit. The word benefit was there from eating in labor. And I was so naive even back then. And I said, oh my gosh, this is great news. I won't have to teach this segment anymore because all the hospitals are going to change now because it's not the little childbirth educators saying it now. It's, it's them saying it. No, nothing changed. Not one thing changed. 17 they're all, years. They're, right, right. They're all still doing it. Now, if you eat in labor, nothing happens. You have no liability. So now that you know the evidence, now that you know it's only risk, take matters into your own hands. Yes. Thank you. That's well said. 
Trish. Please eat or, and drink and later. Or stay please. home. <laughs> yeah, yeah stay home, can, actually. Don't or go. Or stay home where you can eat and do whatever you want right. at your own home. And mm-hmm. if you if you are giving birth in the hospital, please take your own food yeah. and water right. and eat what you want when you want. Exactly. Um, all right. So I'll be quick on this one. Any provider who starts talking about giving birth on your back. I mean, if you if you ask, you know, can I give what positions can I get birth in? Do you have a birthing stool? Can I use a birthing tub? Can I be on the toilet? And they start talking about, well, you know, when it's time, you can labor wherever you want. But when, you know, when it's time for that baby to come out, we're going to probably have you in the bed on your back, legs up so we can get a really good view and just make sure that we're monitoring all this really carefully. Major red flag. Um, You need to be able to give birth in whatever position your body is telling you to be in in that moment because your baby is communicating with you and the way that your baby is going to navigate their way through your pelvis in the best possible way is to have that line of communication open you need to be able to move freely you need to be on your hands and knees you need to be on your side you need to be on the toilet you need to be walking you need to be on your side whatever it is that feels right to you when it's time to birth your baby is the position you should give birth in and it's safer it's safer for you. It's safer for the baby. It's all going to go a lot better. And you need to have a provider that is going to be willing to support your baby being born in whatever position you're in at the time. It's just and you logical. Need to under- yeah. And you need to understand, although we all have the right to be able to choose to have pain relief and labor, it does really limit your ability to have that communication with your baby and to be able to move in those ways. So it's just something to really consider. There was a hospital in Los Angeles who was still doing walking epidurals, which was really helpful, but um, it's it's very infrequent. So, you know, really educate yourself and think about um, the ability to be able to to move around when you are unmedicated as well. It's just intuitively obvious. I mean, again, if we look at any how any other mammal labors, they never stay in one place, right? They'll do whatever they need to do to help their babies navigate the canal. It's essential. It's essential to have that movement. Mm-hmm. And Cynthia, one more? Yeah. Oh, I was just going to quickly say the only comments I ever make about epidurals, because it's not for me to know when an epidural could potentially make sense in yeah. labor. But when you get an epidural, um, my first, really, and my only thought is you're cutting off communication between you and the baby because it's really good feedback where the baby is, you respond, you turn over, you move. Um, it's kind of an interesting way to think of um, an epidural sometimes. The last one is your intuition. I mean, who am I to say that the doctor I fired who was wrong for me isn't right for somebody out there? I could never presume to tell anyone who the right provider is. Um, but you know. And the only thing that women have to do is trust their own intuition and learn to listen to their intuition. So I'm going to give them all, anyone listening, a really great technique for listening to your intuition. Very simple. When you get to your appointment, assuming it isn't a home birth, you can do the same uh, with a home birth. But when you drive to that appointment, turn off the car, sit there, just close your eyes for a minute. Ask yourself at least two or three emotions you're feeling in that moment. And, you know, I used to show up to appointments really excited to check on my baby. I was so excited. And some women show up nervous. They're anxious. They've had a concern during the week. They want to bring it to their provider. And you sit there and say, I'm feeling anxious today. I'm worried about this happening, that happening. Now go to your appointment. Come back to your car. Before you turn on your car, close your eyes. How am I feeling? 
Your emotions will be different after the appointment. The question is, how did they change? If you feel better after the appointment, you're with the right provider. Listen to your intuition. I think it's a great way of checking in with yourself and being honest with yourself for sure. And I agree with you, uh, what you were saying about one, you know, somebody that could be great for one person is not necessarily a good fit for another. But I also really um, acknowledge what you were sharing about reflecting back on the things that you didn't say about the provider that you had had previously, because there is a provider here in Santa Barbara who has been known to do um, manual episiotomies, what it's called. So basically using the hands to rip open a woman's mm. vagina during delivery. I know. Uh, and, you know, it's hard to tell someone that that is what's happening. But if we don't tell someone that that's what's happening, she may sit in her car and have the best intuition about this woman because she's popular She's kind in the appointments, but these are the kind of things that it is hard for us to tell people. But if we don't give them this information, they're not going to know. And so we can do it in an unbiased way and not, not completely unbiased, but in a way where we're giving information without trying to do anything besides, I just want to let you know that this is something that has been shared with me in the past and, and leave it at that. Let them make their own decisions. Um, but I do think we are inherently disconnected from our intuition because of the way that we life works now. You know, we're, we're, we're tuning into what experts and friends and family members are saying and not doing that to ourselves. So I think that's a, a wonderful exercise for families to be able to start to hone in on what, at least what they're feeling. Pregnancy is a great time to really start exercising that muscle because you need it a lot in parenthood. Agreed. (laughs) I used to walk out of those, I used to walk in smiling and I would walk out praying and thinking, how am I going to go to work and function today? Because my doctor was always scaring me. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when we got the results for, I think it was the down screening or something. It was like one in 6,000. And I was so anxious, inherently anxious. I said, oh, that that's pretty good, right? And she said, well, you could be that one. <laughs> so <laughs> whatever it was that she said, I walked out not feeling, not feeling better. Yeah. Um, anyway, but you're right. But sometimes when you do give people a heads up, they're like, you know what? I, I know what you mean because they said this thing that time, like it was in there usually. Yeah. But they yeah. might've suppressed it. Yeah. I'll tell you, we could keep this going for a very long time. Um, unfortunately, things have to, all good things must end. We have um, other things to do today. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm on the road, but uh, I'm headed up toward uh, Northern Utah. Uh, on my way to Wyoming. But I want to say that anybody who enjoyed this, you listen to the Down to Birth podcast. Um, We will put in the show notes how to reach you guys uh, independently. I want to end with this little note. Um, I think it was last week, Bliss, that we talked about the successful story of the lady who had the vaginal birth after she was told that her placenta was low-lying and she she needed to have a C-section. Then I read another letter from a woman in the Czech Republic. I think you might have remembered that. She hasn't had her baby yet, but she wrote me this actually at 523 this morning. She says, oh, hold on, I got to put my glasses on. And I just thought it tied, tied things up very nicely. She said, I hope you are doing well. I just feel like I should update you about my situation. Me and my husband talked to my doctor again a couple of days ago because we wanted to sign a legal document that we would take full responsibility. However, my doctor got a red flag 
from the head office and said she can't do anything about it because it's the hospital policy. But if she was in the United Kingdom, she would proceed. At least she was honest and more empathetic, but we declined the plan cesarean. I had another scan today, but I decided to go to another hospital and see another doctor that my doula recommended highly. Of course, this doctor was suspicious because who would change a doctor at 38 weeks and three days? Um, but the fetal specialist did another scan and told me that my placenta is low-lying, but away from the head, and that I can have a natural birth. I literally cried from happiness. Mm. So I love the word that she used, red flag, and then she went and got a second opinion, and she was probably sitting in her car afterwards thinking, I feel better now. So all the <laughs> things that you just said were, were just, just happened to uh, Clarka in the Czech Republic. And I, I asked her to send us a, a follow-up when she has her baby and how it went. So I will report nice. that on the future podcast. Nice. Yeah. So thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you, you, ladies, for joining us today. It was a lovely conversation and getting to know your work and who you are a little bit more. I really um, appreciate the time that you spent with us. Do you have a closing thought real quickly? The last clip, the closing thought I have is whenever people tell us how much they love our podcast, they usually respond with our other favorite podcast is Birthing Instincts. Oh. So it just feels very simpatico. Yeah, we get that. Yeah, we get that. And I know we listen to each other's podcasts at times. And it's just really wonderful to be with you both. And thanks for the work that you're doing for your boldness and your honesty and your expertise. And we have a dream of going to one of your uh one of your workshops and learning a lot more about breech vaginal birth. So maybe that day will come. Yay. Yeah. I hope to get out East at some point. Uh, anyway, thanks Boy. everybody for listening. Uh, we'll, we'll see you next week. Um, in the meantime, drink element. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. 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 Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the birthing instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 